The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name is Darcy and I work in the editorial team here at the II. And I'm Ben, also a member of the editorial team here at the II. And today we've got for you The Future of Freedom, featuring prolific British writer and philosopher and co-founder of the Philosopher's Magazine, Julian Bagini. Renowned Australian philosopher of science, Peter Godfrey-Smith, and leading British neuroscientist, Sarah Garfinkel. And this took place at Hey, How the Light Gets In 2022, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the II. So, Ben, tell us a bit about the debate. So, this debate is about free will. Is it an illusion? And, yeah, can we ever possess ultimate free will? It was inspired by the Lebet experiment, the famous Lebet experiment in the 1980s, where he found that people actually perform an action before their brain has consciously made the decision to do it, sparking these questions amongst materialists as to whether, you know, free will truly is an illusion. Mm. But yeah, what do you think? It's very interesting because I think if we if we sort of agree that it is this exquisite illusion which we seem to be moving towards, then what what is the sort of evolutionary purpose of having this kind of very detailed depiction of agency that's sort of just completely illusory? Fascinating discussion. I think it'll be really good. So we should probably hand over to the debate. But remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's now hand over to our host for this debate, YouTube sensation and philosophy commentator, Alex O'Connor. We're here today to talk about free will and the nature of scientific experiment. As many of you may be aware, uh, a famous experiment from the 1980s led by Benjamin Lebet, made many philosophers and scientists conclude that we finally had scientific empirical proof that free will is an illusion. From the moment that this study was executed, the results have been challenged, and recent studies have tried to invalidate the conclusions of that particular experiment, and many people still contend that free will cannot be proven to be illusory by uh, empiricism. But the legacy of that experiment does still persist in that it's still referenced by a great deal of philosophers and scientists in their arguments against the existence of free will, supporting their belief that humans are nothing more than biological machines. We often imagine that scientific experiments can settle matters, but should we instead be concluding that our interpretations of experiments are actually a function of our desire to believe certain conclusions, or indeed a function of our worldview? Or can scientific experiment be truly value-free? And in this instance of Lebet's experiment, can we finally use such experiments to show that free will is an illusion? Quite a weighty topic, I think you'll agree. And so to help me, I'm joined today by three uh, distinguished philosophers. To my right is Julian Bagini, who is a distinguished philosopher, writer, and journalist. His most recent book is The Great Guide, What David Hume Can Teach Us About Being Human and Living Well. To my near left, Peter Godfrey Smith, an Australian philosopher of science and writer. His most recent book, Metazoa, Animal Minds and the Birth of Consciousness, was described by the New York Times Book Review as both enthralling and also breathtaking. Uh, to my far left is Sarah Garfinkel, who is a renowned neuroscientist and professor at the UCL Institute of Cognitive Science. Her research concentrates on the links between interoception, emotion, and memory. She was described by Nature as a rising star in her field, 
and has written over 100 articles and contributed to many major academic journals. She is also the esteemed recipient of the British Association for Cognitive Neuroscience Career Award in 2021. So to start, I asked if uh, Sarah Garfinkel would mind giving us an overview of the experiment that we're talking about, just in case anybody is, is unfamiliar with it. Um, so if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to tell us what experiment we're talking about. So in the Libet experiment, um, which was done in 1983, so it was a while ago now, people were asked to press a button, essentially whenever they felt like it. Um, and uh, in front of them, they had a fast moving whirling clock. And that way they could report when their intention to press the button was by virtue of saying where the hands were on the clock. And then in other conditions, they could also press the button. And what they were able to show was that when you look at the neural activity, there's actually a signature in the brain which was then labeled the readiness potential, which happens 800 milliseconds before the self-reported intention to press the button. So what you're having is a neural signature in the brain that predicts the desire to move. And this was then taken by philosophers and some scientists as a, as a challenge to free will, that actually our neural activity dictates our beliefs, desires, and intentions. So we're going to take a step back first, and rather than talking immediately about this specific experiment, talk about the nature of experiment in general. Uh, one of the most important questions that's often asked in the philosophy of science is whether there can be such thing as a value-free experiment. We often imagine scientific endeavor to be neutral and objective, but there seems to be some sense in which the very process of doing science assumes some normative force, a value of consistency, a value of honesty, a value of truth even. But this is a hotly debated topic, so I want to get some thoughts uh, from the panel. So we'll start with Julian Bugini. Do you think that scientific experiments in principle can ever be value-free? Well, I mean, sometimes I, th I think when, when you sort of deal with sort of absolutes, you always end up having to sort of c concede something, right? Does, does value-free mean to conduct your experiments in ways where there is no trace of any kind of value at any stage in the process? Well, no, because, for example, the very, the very choice of which experiments you choose to conduct or not, what it is you want to research into is going to reflect certain values. So, you know, and, and we've seen this has been uh, resulted in lots of injustices around illnesses which affect uh, women more than men, ethnic minorities more than white people, and so forth. And also think about all the research that goes into things like, you know, agriculture and everything, which is not necessarily driving the need to feed the, the world's population as nutritiously and as cheaply as possible, but is basically aiming at getting, getting patents that uh, agricultural industries, big agri-tech can use to, to maximize its profits. And often that means controlling the production much more and taking power away from farmers. So value-free, no, because of this, this kind of stuff, right? But in terms of can we conduct experiments and can we assess whether they have um, good experiments or not without having to bring in any really substantive values, I, th I think we can. And if we don't believe that, we have no way of saying what's wrong with all those excessively value-laden experiments, right? So if we do research into uh, an illness in a way which is, is not paying due attention to the risk factors for certain a minority or, or, or underrepresented groups in science, you can only show that's occurring by, by pointing out that the more on the more objective view, you would be looking at the data a little bit differently. So um, I, I think that value free is too high a bar, right? But I, I don't think we need, we can we certainly examine scientific evidence and conduct experiments and assess them in ways that do not require us to bring in distorting excessive things. It's hard work. You know? Sure. I think that some of the familiar ways of asking about the role of values in science are, are problematic. Every human activity is value-guided to some extent. I mean, the idea of a, a human activity which is not directed by evaluations and values, I think, doesn't make a lot of sense. In a scientific case, I think the, the big question here concerns the relationship between different kinds of values. So we might distinguish between epistemic values such as 
um, understanding, explanation, finding the truth as a goal. This, this, these are value laden. The, the search for truth because truth is to be valued is an aspect of science that's value laden, but there's no sense in which that's kind of worrying that role for value. Then you have non-epistemic values, which involve things like politics and money, basically. Uh, trying to, at the micro level, advance your career, that's not really a epistemic matter. Uh, trying to advance the interests of your country, trying to um, make money for some particular group, that's non-epistemic. So I think I would, I would re-ask the question by saying, um, is it reasonable and is it appropriate to hope that experimental work in science might be shorn of a role for non-epistemic values, full of, full of the pursuit of epistemic values? That's a value richness in science, which is fine, but there's the other kind that we might worry about. And in response to the re-asked question, I would say I think there is a lot of sense in an ideal of science being free of an intrusive role for non-epistemic values. I think it's a reasonable ideal. It's something we might head towards. Now, with respect to where the border is, Julian mentioned a moment ago choice of what to work on as uh, a feature of science that is uh, value-laden in various ways. Now, does that fall on the epistemic or the non-epistemic side? It's not like, you know, once I'm doing science, I want to uh, find the truth because my, my goal, my value involves accurate representation of the world. That's epistemic. On the non-epistemic, we have things like, I want to make a lot of money for these companies I've invested in. Where does sort of wanting this to be investigated rather than that to be investigated for. I'm not completely sure. Maybe the right thing to say is there'll be ways of approaching that question in which epistemic values are guiding you. You believe this will be informative. That's why you're studying it. And there are also ways of approaching the, the question of topic choice where there's an inappropriate role for non-epistemic values. It's a fine-grained question, but I would re-ask the initial question in terms of this distinction between epistemic values in science which are natural and fine and non-epistemic values which are I think potentially problematic. Now of those epistemic values that you mentioned the kind of values that are inherent to the scientific uh, in, to scientific inquiry things like a value of honesty and truth and consistency and these kinds of things these appear to be things that can't themselves be scientifically validated. You can't scientifically validate that truth is meaningful or valuable. And so does scientific experiment have to assume, perhaps non-problematically, it might be justified to assume, but that something that's undergirding the entire scientific enterprise is itself not in any way validated by science? That's interesting. I think that in principle and in a broad sense, science combined with certain kinds of philosophical work can tell us whether truth is a reasonable goal or an unreasonable goal. So some philosophers of science and some scientists have thought truth is kind of a, it's a sort of fetish or it's a kind of illusion or it's something that's not w worthy of serious pursuit. Or you might think it's not worthy of serious pursuit in some areas. So Bas van Frassen, who's exceptionally good and influential philosopher of science, uh, in the previous century uh, argued that there's, it's not impossible to get true representations of unobservable parts of reality, but it's kind of idle scientifically. All you want is theories that tell you true things about what's happening in the observable domain. And if a theory does that, you shouldn't worry about its truth beyond the observable. Now that's Van Frassen saying uh, that a certain goal is appropriate to science and another goal true representation of the unobservable is not. And one of the ways that pressure was put on, by the way, the, the, the main book that Van Frassen used to advance this argument is a book called The Scientific Image. Very good book. One of the ways that people put pressure on this was arguing that it's a scientific fact that the border between the observable and the unobservable is a vague, permeable, shifting border. It's not the kind of border that should be used to mark out a fundamental divide between reasonable and unreasonable goals in scientific work. Now, that, to say something like that is partly or largely philosophical, 
but it's informed, you know, people made that case in a way informed by the history of microscopy, how the unobservable became the observable over time. There's a role for science itself in telling us what goals are reasonable goals within science, I think. Sarah, do you have views on this? And also in your own research, have you seen the influence of value judgments, ideology, even playing a role in the kind of experiments that are being conducted? Yeah, it's really interesting to me to hear the philosophers talk about it on a more abstract level. I'm because I very much day to day ask the questions about my own research um, and also can see how values shape what's possible um, and how the data is dealt with. So certainly um, values will shape the funding that we get in um, a lot of the work I do is mental health research. We've um, helped people with anxiety, trauma, and in a sense, values there shape the funding landscape and um, fund that research maybe more than some of the more abstract research. I have to think as a scientist what biases I'm bringing to the data. There's also a move now to do inclusive science. So we work together. If we are working with people with anxiety or trauma, we shape the research together so that we're not imposing our own values onto the research, but the individuals themselves with these conditions can help shape the questions which are important to them and how it's done. Um, and then in terms of analyses, we may bring our own values and ideas into the analyses to shape the way that they're done. And the open science movement, I think, has been amazing, where we now put all our data online that allows people to analyze it from all different perspectives, no matter where they come from. Mm, the, the question of bias is an interesting one that's brought to the table. I think a lot of people are of the intuition that bias isn't something that you can ever entirely eliminate. Instead, you should try to recognize and account for it. There seem to be some biases which could, in theory, be good biases. Like we all, mostly in this room, probably have a bias towards wanting to know the truth, for instance. It's something that's just kind of there that we haven't quite justified to ourselves. It seems to be something that we bring to the table automatically. This is the kind of value uh, that, that might undergird science. But there's this distinction between the values which, which motivate which scientific experiments are done and the values that that motivate the very method of experimentation itself. Do you think that it is possible to have bias-free, much less kind of value-free, but specifically in the terms of bias, do you think it's possible to eliminate these from any field of scientific in inquiry, or is it always going to be there? I think, and it's very much tied to the idea of the topic of the, the debate, which is my research shows that we can represent in our brains and in our bodies different drives instincts which are not necessarily susceptible to uh, conscious reflection and self-report. So in that sense, we can have instincts and biases which potentially um, diverge from our ability to know and recognize them. Um, and uh, it's a challenge to uh, uh, eliminate them from our research, but why? That's why scientific debate and open conversation and challenges is a good way of um, keeping people in check. Sure. So I'm sure that the lovely people here wanted us to speak a bit about free will, which we've managed to avoid so far. Um, I think it would be very useful uh, in answering this first question about free will specifically to briefly define what we mean by the word free will. So much of debates about whether we have free will or not often seem to boil down to just people defining their terms differently. So what I want to ask is, is what you mean by the term free will, what you understand it to mean, and also whether you think in principle experiments, empirical scientific experiments that is, are the kinds of things which can validate or invalidate whether we have free will. And I suppose, why don't we start with, with Julian? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting then because if you define, define it in advance, you are very much sort of like then um, setting up your justification for whether you believe it exists or not. Um, I, I think the only kind of free will which makes sense is to say that to have free will is to have the capacity to act on your own decisions and desires and wants in a somewhat and sometimes self-conscious way, free from uh, force and coercion. And I think that's the only kind of version of free will that makes sense. Now, I think the problem is that a lot of people assume that free will is, is an ability to be able to make a decision which is in, in no sense uh, determined by the, the, your causal history, essentially. So it's enables to like stand back from everything that's happened to us 
the entirety of our nature and nurture and to make a choice which goes in whatever direction we choose. And, and, and although that on the, on the initially sounds like a reasonable definition, I don't think it takes long to show that's actually a little bit crazy. What, what, what does it mean to sort of like just capriciously choose something without reference to your nature and nurture? Do I have free will if I decide now what I want to drink is a margarita, even though previously I've never enjoyed margaritas? I've just, through three free will, I've decided I'm going to like margaritas and choose one. I mean, that just turns me into some kind of weird, capricious, random generating machine. But let's go to the experiments thing, because I think this is the, the key thing. We've heard about the Libet experiment, and I think you have to think too hard about the Libet experiment. I think, you know, do, do, do specific experiments in neuroscience going on today, are they important data for our understanding of free will? And I don't think they are. I think that, I certainly think that scientific evidence is important, right? But here's the key stuff. You're a 21st century individual. Presumably you believe, and not everyone does, right? But presumably most people will believe that thought and consciousness, all these things are, we, we can do these things because we have this functioning embodied brain right so the brain is what is the the engine the motor behind it we believe that we also believe presumably we know that we are not consciously aware of what's going on in the brain right we had to discover that it was about neurons firing we were, we didn't sort of like think oh i've just felt when my neuron hit another neuron we're not aware of that so as a, a broadly educated sensible 21st century person you should know that your thoughts and your feelings and your actions are being powered by this thing in the brain through processes through which you are entirely unconscious right so if you believe that you should never be surprised that any given experiment goes ah i've just discovered there's something unconscious going on in your brain when you make a decision and 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 maybe even it happened before you were consciously aware of it right i mean if you're surprised by that if you think oh my god that's the end of free will you haven't been paying attention to the basic you know what necessarily follows from accepting the fact that the brain is the engine of thought right so so then you have to go back to ask yourself the question do you think that in order to say we have a mind and free will we have to have something which stands out outside of our brains and controls it because if you do think that then you should have concluded we had no such things years and years and years ago the alternative is to believe that whatever consciousness free will all these things are they're tied up with this organic brain and involve lots of things which we're not consciously aware of and not consciously in control of so if we are to have any meaningful sense of free will in the 21st century as scientific literary, scientifically literate people, we have to accommodate the fact that, of course, there's lots of things we're not in control of and we're not conscious of. If that scares you, then, you know, uh, let's say you should have been scared. It's sort of like GCSE science, I think. Control seems to be the, the one of the most important, most valuable uh, parts of free will. It may even be something of a synonym for it. It's people want to know that they have control over their actions. You said that there are lots of things that we're not in control over and this shouldn't scare us, but is there anything that we are in control of? Well, conscious control and control, these are two important different things, all right? So, you know, if you're driving, for example, a lot of the time you're not, I mean, you're, you're, you are conscious and you're in control, I hope, right? But, you know, you're not necessarily thinking about every single thing. You know, the things with the pedals are happening sort of automatically. But it's not just that. I, I sometimes think, and I, I start to stutter when I talk about this because I've become self-aware. I, I think people are not paying enough attention to just what it's like to just sort of do ordinary everyday things. They get freaked out by the Libet experiment, but they think uh, next time you have a conversation with anybody, having a conversation, just try and spot what's happening to you as you're speaking. And I'm, I'm, I'm doing this now, I'm trying to become aware of myself speaking, right? It's not the case that inside my head I'm writing a little script for myself, which I'm then reading out loud, right? The speech is simultaneous, right? I'm not really aware, I'm not, as I'm speaking, I'm not really aware of where these words are coming from, frankly. And I don't think that's because I'm a freak. I'm sure it's the same for you too. So everyday experience tells us that there's pretty much everything that's going on in our lives is, is, is on this sort of automatic level. But crucially, we do have the ability from time to time, and we do it regularly in small doses and sometimes in longer doses, to step back and think and reflect. Now, I think that's important. If we could never do that, I'm not sure we could say we had free will. But in the moment to moment, 
most things are automatic and that's fine i'm in control i play tennis and, and it's completely uh, very badly and uh, yeah and it's completely automatic but when if i hit a good shot i've hit a good shot and it was me and i meant to do it and not because not because i decided in advance that it's going to do you know you you know you in, in in the second you mean to do it and you do it there's no it's not because i'm making a conscious deliberation beforehand mm. i guess the the question to to keep in mind is even if you are the author of the action whether that constitutes freedom and i think that's the thing under discussion here um thoughts yeah my my response will overlap a little bit uh with with julian's but it's i think it's fine to to cover this ground twice if we ask whether an experiment could tell us whether free will is real the answer will obviously depend on what free will is supposed to be what what this thing that might be real but might not be real uh is is supposed to be i think the everyday or the kind of the, the concept of free will that's a kind of refinement of everyday thinking is probably not genuinely coherent i think there's instability in it which is which runs very deep and this is revealed readily in in philosophy classes, sort of introductory classes that, that handle free will, where a question that is posed early on, naturally, is, is it the case that an action is free if it stems from the normal operation of beliefs and desires that the whole person has, it was not circumvented, short-circuited, imposed upon by factors that are alien from the person's decision-making process. Is that enough for a decision to be free? Given that such a, a choice, such a decision, will have a complete causal history, if materialism is true, that involves the firing of neurons and all sorts of stimuli and a history uh, that the person's had, is, is the presence of a complete causal story that perhaps doesn't necessitate the action, but is the kind of causal basis for it stemming far back in time and outside of the person's body, does that destabilize or undermine the apparent freedom of the action that did involve the exercise of reason on the part of the person? Now, I think in philosophy classrooms and elsewhere, it's, it's common and natural for people's intuitions to, to fluctuate, to not be wholly stable in this question. There are some framings of it, and Dan Dennett in philosophy has spent many decades trying to really push these framings where once you're convinced that the action involved the exercise of rational faculties, beliefs, and desires, then there's not really a further question about whether it's free or not. That's enough, that's enough for freedom. There are other philosophers who will press on what look like the alienating roles of these deep causes that extend uh, through mechanical or quasi-mechanical chemical processes and go back outside the person's body, back into their past, press on the, the apparently alienating role of those and suggest that even if a decision feels free and involve the exercise of you know, beliefs and desires on the part of the person, you know, nonetheless, it could not have been otherwise. The universe could not have given rise to any other action, and that means it wasn't free. Now, I certainly experienced as a philosophy student, looking back many decades now, a little bit of a sort of vertigo feeling in response to that kind of thing. You know, what, what really is necessary for freedom? Just that I have beliefs and desires that operate normally in giving rise to the action, or some kind of pure, voluntary, uncaused, spontaneous act of the sort that Julian sort of reasonably caricatured to some extent <laughs> a few minutes ago. Is that what I'm assuming has to be there for freedom? Now, I don't think there's an answer really to the question of what the everyday notion of free will involves, whether it's one of those or the other. I think it's kind of a mix. I think it's incoherent. I think it's a bit all over the place. But if experiments are going to bear on this, they can only really bear on the milder conception of free will, the one that involves the question of which kinds of internal processes were and were not involved in giving rise to an action. Um, the question of whether there could be a kind of uh, wholly pure, spontaneous, voluntary act, I think in a way that's been settled by the advance of a general scientific world picture 
outside of any particular experiments we might do now. Yeah, I think uh, maybe that's the right way to say it. I think that's been settled in, settled in advance of any experiment that we might do now. Sarah, what do you think free will is? And w what kind of things do you think we could be like looking for in the brain to determine whether or not someone has it? So I, I'm very happy for the um, philosophers to define free will, but I can experimentally study dissociations between self-report beliefs and intentions and changes in body physiology, brain and heart, which precede actions. But I agree that's a soft type. And I agree that maybe tells us very little about free will. It tells us how we represent knowledge, beliefs, desires at all different levels of our body physiology, which may or may not map onto self-report variables. So I do a lot of experiments um, looking at the heart. So even though I'm a neuroscientist, I'm fascinated with how the heart is. And actually you can see changes in the heart which happen before any conscious awareness so there are lovely experiments that um, are set up where complex algorithms underlie good choices and bad choices people have no conscious insight into what's a good choice and what's a bad choice but over time they start to go to the good choices more than the bad choices they still don't know they're doing that but if you look at the cardiac signals it displays beautiful changes that predict what's a good choice and what's a bad choice before any conscious awareness happens so we can represent knowledge in all different levels in our body and I believe the heart is is amazingly reactive at doing this and it can guide choices but these are soft choices without big consequences and I would say they have very little bearing uh, in the real world with real um, consequences is where we allow our automatic signals to prevail and guide our actions and we're of course able to inhibit these with areas like the prefrontal cortex that are able to um, be engaged in most people with free will um, who can then have controlled uh, a thought so I I like these experiments that show this dissociation between self-report about intention and, and actual action. And I like the experiments that show brain signals and cardiac signals that guide this behavior in the absence of um, insight. But I think these experiments just show us that, that levels, knowledge, beliefs, and desires can be represented at all different levels, and that self-report is an unreliable narrator of these different signals. Yes. And do, you, can I just start, do you think that that heart experiment, which is very interesting, do you think that's sort of freedom-friendly or freedom-unfriendly, a little bit or neither? How does it push on the notion of freedom for you, that result? For me, if you want my genuinely honest answer, yes, yes, I and I'm really worried that it's going to disappoint everyone, is I've not even ever thought about it in the context. <laughs> I'm so sorry. So the way, because my PhD was looking at the effect of alcohol on memory, um, and alcohol uh, knocks out explicit processes and keeps implicit processes intact. So I'm very interested historically in how you can have a deviation in conscious and unconscious systems, different types of drugs, different types of pharmacology, different types of sleep and awake cycles that balance that 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 loads on the balance of these different systems. And I'm interested just in these associations. I'm interested in how some people have better insight than others. Some people are better able to use their self-report measures to map onto their cardiac signal and their neural activity. You get these insight uh, differences with where the, the autistic individuals I work with have a very poor self-report mapping onto bodily physiology. So I'm interested in what variables make these divergence between self-report and physiology bigger and what variables make them align. And I've only ever seen it in that way with very little <laughs> thought uh, how that may feed into philosophical debates about the notion of free will. This is, of course, the beauty of bringing people together under such circumstances. <laughs> this, this, this idea of, I mean, I, I, are you meaning to suggest that the heart can non-poetically be the, the source of, of you know, good and bad choices at the heart absolutely, somehow absolutely. determines? Yeah. Is it, it, does it determine the behavior? Heart. Does it determine beliefs? It does, can. It, it can determine, um, you can predict aesthetic judgments in a gallery by people's cardiac responses to art. People who are better able to detect accurately cardiac signals have better meaningful intuitive decision making that maps onto real outcomes. Is, it, is this something like um, where, where yeah. you say that looking at someone's 
um, yeah. the, the heart's response to yeah. somebody looking at some art. Yeah. Do you think it's the kind of looking at the art that's determining the well the yes so that was that was tricky because yeah the other way around because it's, it's causally you're right that one is tricky um but the best examples are the ones where we control within an experiment um the the outcomes being them good or bad and people don't have conscious insight into the good or bad but the cardiac signal predicts it is a better predict is a better example of the heart leading the way so here's an example of a kind of experiment which maybe in principle could inform us on on free will what 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 do what well what do you think julian is this the kind of thing that can, can at least shed some light on on the nature of freedom I, I really don't understand enough about that experiment particularly to, to, to answer, I don't think. Um, the more broad question about, you know, are there any experiments which could be informative um, in substantive matters? It's tricky. I mean, the, the, big, the big sort of spectre in the free will debate is what's called your know, epiphenomenalism, the idea that, you know, that our thoughts, our desires, all, all the conscious stuff is doing no work. It's just kind of the noise, the engines whirring with the brain and everything else is just noise. And, you know, could an experiment show epiphenomenalism to be true? I'm not sure it would, because I think that sometimes the, the, the problem with epiphenomenalism is that it, it seems plausible when you buy into, I think, what is a, a scientifically misguided way of understanding the physical world, which is in a sense that the only real causes are the causes found in fundamental physics. So if you start your car and, um, you know, and it doesn't start or it starts, you can say true things about that. You can say, you know, that the, the turning the ignition, I don't understand engines, sorry, turning the engines causes the spark plugs to do this, that and the other. And you can tell a causal story and that's true. And you can say the reason why it didn't start was because the battery was flat. And these things are all true, right? They're not false. But batteries, spark plugs, these aren't in fundamental physics, right? So you went around to say, that's not true because there are no spark plugs in fundamental physics. What really caused it to happen was, you know, and you go down to the bottom layer. Now, in the same kind of way, when people talk about, get overexcited about neuroscience, they, they, you say, look, at the neural level, it's all neurons firing, right? That's what it is at the bottom level. It's all neurons firing. So therefore, you can't say that anything happening at other levels of organization is real or true, you know? So it can't be true that the, your thought did anything because a thought isn't a neuron, right? And I, I think that's just a fundamental mistake. You know, our causal descriptions of the world work on the basis of what level of description is most appropriate to the to the task in hand. And I don't think I can't. I don't think a scientific experiment could ever show us that if you could completely model all the activity in the mind in purely neural, neural terms. Someone say, ah, so that proves that whatever else is going on, thoughts, feelings, the sensations, that's got nothing to do with it because we've done it, we mapped it completely at the neural level. I don't think that would be true. That'd be no more than saying that if you could describe the, the movement of a car completely in terms of fundamental physics, it means that batteries aren't required for them to start or that a failure of a spark plug isn't a, isn't a cause of it not starting. I, so I think we have to go back to, I think what's been suggested already, that the kind of experiments would be interesting, it'd be more fine-grained, showing that some specific thing which we thought depended more on our conscious action than, than it does turns out not to that that could sort of like tweak our idea of the scope and the extent of our free will but i don't think it's such an experiment can show we either do or we don't have it partly because to sort of summarize a bit i think do or don't have it is the wrong way to look at it anyway you know free will in a meaningful sense is having a degree of control and agency and that is always a matter of degree it's not you have it or you don't right well suppose for example we had an experiment um or rather some kind of finding whereby some scientist has developed the technology to predict with 100% certainty. They scan somebody's brain, they track every single position of every atom in the brain and which uh, direction neurons are firing and all of this kind of thing. And they're able with some computer program to predict with 100% accuracy exactly what a human being will do over the next five minutes. And every time they run it, it predicts it with 100% accuracy. Is this the kind of thing that would make you skeptical that people are free? It would, it would, I think that, that thought is always quite scary to people, isn't it? We don't like to think we're, we're that predictable. But predictability is, in a sense, a bit of a red herring there. It's a bit like the idea, you know, there's a the old theological argument 
that um, if God God knows what you're going to do before you've even done it, then how can your actions be free, right? Because the idea here seems to be that if it's predictable, it's somehow, you know, fixed in the wrong kind of way. But um, sometimes I, I make predictable free choices all the time, right? So if you see me go in to order a coffee and you know what kind of coffee I like, um, I don't literally order the same one every time, but you'll, you'll probably be able to predict what I'm going to order. You're certainly going to predict I'm not going to order a caramel latte grande maximo, whatever it's called. Um, <laughs> that's very, very predictable. It's entirely predictable. But why does that mean it's not free? In fact, the reason it's free is, is because, it, I mean, Hume argued that it's the predictability which shows you it's free, as it, if you like, that it's because my choices are driven by my my desires my personality and these things have a meaningful stability that's what makes the choice of the coffee meaningful and that in turn is what makes it somewhat predictable so i, I don't think i don't think we should get too sort of concerned that predictability is in itself the big threat to free will peter do you agree with julian on this if we have this computer that can predict i could i could i could write down on a bit of paper right now every word that you're about to say in answer to this question and once you said it, I turned it around and said I predicted it with 100% accuracy. Would that be troubling to you? <laughs> it would be a little disconcerting. Uh, I agree. But, but I agree more with Julian that predictability uh, and freedom don't have a particularly antagonistic relationship. I mean, the coffee example, I accept. I think the sorts of things that are scientifically uh, in principle showable that would really be destabilizing or undermining of free will would be work on the mechanics that showed that the kind of belief desire interaction that on the milder conceptions of free choice is what has to underlie a free behavior. You know, you want this, you believe this, this action makes sense in terms of your beliefs and your desires, so you do that. If, if that's the model of an unconstrained reasonable free choice if it turns out that lots of what actually generates our behavior is quite different from that and the thing that we think of as the belief desire story that might be told is a kind of confabulated rationalization we're just storytelling when we engage in those sorts of interpretations if that's showable then i'm bothered as we're talking here, I'm remembering an experiment I, I read about years ago. I don't know if this has been followed up. I think it's called the pantyhose experiment. Uh, this was from some decades ago where the idea was there are certain kinds of predictability in people's product choices. If you line things up on a table, I think it's a right-hand preference or something like that. People reliably go for a particular, the, the object in a particular part of the display. And you can do an experiment where the four items in the display are physically identical. They'll go for a particular one pretty reliably, and you ask them why, and they'll cook up a story. They'll find it and say, oh, I thought that one just had a nicer texture, or it just the, the particular color appealed to me, even though the experimenter is quite confident that there's no physical difference between these things. So that's a situation where there's a disconnect between the, sto the, the rationalizing story that the person has in their mind, either before the fact or after the fact or both, and the mechanics behind the actual thing they did. Now, if there was tons of that, if that was something that was all over human action, where it's not predictability per se, it's the fact that what predicts the choice is something that's far outside of what looks like the kind of rationalizing belief desire based story. If that was all over the place, I would be more than disconcerted. I think that really would be that would be trouble. But as but as scientists, um, we we see self-report as notoriously unreliable. Like we, as a neuroscientist, I like including self-report variables in my experiments, often because I find it fascinating how they don't necessarily align up with um, how confidence doesn't necessarily line up with action, and you get these lovely divergences. And and yes, we do create narratives after the fact. And there is a reason why um, self-report measures deviate from uh, actual mapping of uh, neural and physiological uh, measures. 
And you see that more for self-related concepts than you do for extraceptive. So we have the extraceptive system, which is how to navigate and understand the world. We have the interceptive system, which is how to understand ourself um, and our internal signals. And you can do experiments where you look at people's um, uh, ability to uh, be confident that they've seen, felt, heard an extraceptive system. Um, signal and that nicely corresponds to confidence you get a nice confidence accuracy correspondence but with interceptive signals about what's happening in ourselves you get this massive divergence uh, between confidence and accuracy for self-related signals um, and that's potentially because there's been a divergence in our extra signals have helped us navigate the world whereas we're constantly bombarded by signals in our body to our brains all the time. And we don't necessarily want to be aware of them, influenced them by them, unless they've reached the threshold of hunger and other types of um, uh, homeostatic needs. So you do get this potential divergence between the, the interceptor signal and conscious access. Is, is my recollection of that older experiment with the displays, yeah. is that accurate? Am yeah, I yeah, I've heard, I've heard that vague one, which is absolutely, people will narrate things afterwards, yeah. But, but what I want to say about that was that, yeah. I, I, sure, we, we do confabulate, we do create these stories, absolutely, and, and, and we underestimate how much of our choices are like that. But the thing about these experiments, right, is that people go, oh my God, this is extraordinary, just because it's to the right. These experiments are usually around things which are like trivial or unimportant I or agree. marginal, I right? Agree. So, yeah. you know, even the Libet thing, you yeah. know, press a button for no good reason whatsoever at any time, <laughs> right? How, and, 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 and that experiment is meant to tell you about whether you have free will, about, you know, the person you choose to have your children with or, or stuff like that. Pantyhose. Uh, so people will choose the pantyhose to the right rather than this do people go into the shops and meaning to buy pantyhose and walk out with socks because the display <laughs> no they don't right so I, th I think that so often the problem here one of the problems here is that it's very very easy to show that we're swayable and persuadable by things we're not aware of but the experiments tend to be on trivial things, not more important things. So let's take something more serious, voting, right? I think there is some evidence that um, the order of the candidates on the ballot paper has a, has a statistically significant effect on how many votes they have. But that does not mean that 99%, 90% of people who go in there know who they want to vote for, they find the candidate and they cross it. What's happening is the sort of like 10% of people who are just undecided or not very thoughtful go in and a percentage of them are influenced by the position on the ballot paper and if you statistically analyse it, that turns out to be significant. It tells you, doesn't tell you that most people going into vote aren't voting for someone who they've chosen to vote for because that candidate they, they believe most aligns with their values. So, you know, generalizing from these very, very contrived laboratory experiments to the big important decisions on life is, is, um, is a huge yeah. leap. As an experimentalist, I completely agree with that. <laughs> like, uh, we need to have these things in the lab in order to study them, but I absolutely believe they're contrived as well. Mm. And we can exercise this different circuitry that underlies this automatic type processing and more controlled processing, like the prefrontal cortex that exercises inhibitory control over these more automatic signals. So absolutely, and We're I guess not. it's hard to investigate consequential choices in an experiment because you don't want too much to depend on the downstream yeah. consequences of what you do in, in an experiment. Yeah. yeah. We're limited. Yeah. This kind of uh, insight shows us, you know, the idea that there's a somewhat statistically reliable indicator of voting based on the order of candidates on, on a form. And this isn't enough to determine that somebody will always vote for the first person, but it's, it's one of a great deal of influencing factors. But let's say we just started to consider what the other influencing factors are. So the fact that the first name on the, on the ballot, uh, that's not enough to determine somebody voting, but it has a small influence in that direction. So why someone who does tick that name, why else might they have ticked that name? Well, maybe because of their upbringing and the kind of political uh, culture that they're born into. They have no control over that. That's quite a big influence over who they vote over. Maybe they watched a television debate and they and someone did particularly well. And, and maybe like they didn't control whether the TV was on or not. They walked home and the show happened to be on. Maybe their parents were watching it or something like this, you know. 
if you consider all of these kinds of factors, and we, we discovered that the majority or even all of the factors when you consider all of them are the kinds of things like the order of the, the ballot that we just don't have control over, but it turns out that it's things of that kind which overall do, in fact, determine ultimately why the person uh, ticked that box. It might be lots of different factors, but if we're equally not in control of any of those factors, can we really say that we're in control of who we tick? Well, okay, so if you dig away, if you dig away long enough, you'll find that no factor are you ultimately in control of. And I think that's the, the whole problem, though. Ultimate control is, is, an, is an illusion. You don't need ultimate control to be considered as an ag agent with a certain degree of freedom. You know, ultimately, even, even God, if God existed, would God have ultimate control? There's an argument Spinoza argued, I mean, very persuasively, really. If God is perfect, God acts out of necessity, right? So God's freedom is God's freedom to do what is perfectly right at every time. That's out of necessity. Uh, God couldn't choose to suddenly go, do you know what, I've decided that the rape's a good thing today, although the Old Testament God did do that sometimes, apparently. But anyway, but, but you know, a, a proper God couldn't. I mean, I mean um, sorry, I don't mean to be offensive. A, um, the God of the Old Testament has to be understood a little bit differently if you're going to non-literally, blah, blah. I'm getting into a big hole here. Sorry to offend you. But no, ultimate control is an illusion. Of course not. Of course not. Ultimately, I didn't choose um, where I was born, when I was born, to which parents, with what genes, my upbringing. Ultimate control is an illusion. The, the question you have to go back to, I mean, you mentioned Daniel Dennett. Daniel Dennett's best book on free will, I think, was his first one, Elbow Room. Yeah, it's a great book. And the subtitle is, 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 is the best subtitle ever. It's like the varieties of free will worth wanting. What is the kind of free will we worth want? Ultimate control is a fantasy. Forget about it. What's worth wanting? It's, it's a sufficient degree of control. It's an ability to be responsive and to change. So, so the point about... Um, you know, I can't fundamentally choose my character dispositions, etc., etc., and I can't be ultimately responsible for who I am, which is just as well, uh, probably, because I wouldn't want to be ultimately responsible for who I am. I'm not great enough, right? But because I can be responsive to reasons, I can learn, I can think, I reflect. It is quite right that people hold me responsible for particular actions I do. To the, to the appropriate degree. And so it's this modest, um, you know, free will, the free will that exists is a modest thing in lots of ways. But it's that's all we need it to be because the greater thing is some kind of metaphysical megalomania, I think. I'm afraid that's about all we have time for. Thank you everybody for coming and thanks to our speakers as well. Some interesting thoughts there, Darcy. Mm, indeed. So, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.